The sermon text this morning is from John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If I were to ask you the question, do you think that Christian life is easy, what would you say? Would you, would you say, no, it's difficult, I need help, I need encouragement along the way? Most of us, I think, would. If we were at least honest with ourselves, I think we'd say it's a very, very difficult walk of life for the Christian. Uh, we need help, we need encouragement. Today, I hope to do that kind of in a different way. Um, I, I'm thinking about, like, even with an athlete, you know, an athlete is preparing or training for a competition, it's good to have... Um, a person with them, or her, that they can uh, work out together. There's, a, there's um, you know, you have the camaraderie, you have the encouragement, you have the motivation, you have the challenge. Doing it together is helpful. Uh, seeing someone do it with you is helpful. Well, that's the point of these uh, biographical sermons. You know, uh, A.W. Tozer, a, a Christian author of the 20th century, said, next to the Holy Scriptures, the greatest aid to the life of faith maybe Christian biographies. So since 2004, uh, each year I do a biographical sermon. So I, I step out of the scriptures for a moment and I just look at the life of a person who's been touched by the power of God. And we highlight them and just say, this is what God is by virtue of how he moves in his people. And it's meant to encourage you. It's meant to strengthen you. In fact, really the reasons we do it is because I think there's a scriptural warrant for it. In uh, Romans 15, 4, Paul speaks about the saints of old being examples to us. Examples, why? So we can follow them, we can learn from them, we can be encouraged by them. But also I think it's beneficial to us, you know, to see God's grace in the life of an imperfect saint is helpful. Because you begin to think, well, maybe he can use me. I mean, maybe if if God used that person, then perhaps... I can be useful in God's plan as well. And then thirdly, I I think it's essential. It's hard to see the breadth of God's grace by just looking at our time and our culture. But to look at the history of God's people shows us his expansive nature. You know, we're we're all susceptible to that chronological snobbery that C.S. Lewis, British author, last century speaks about. This idea of, because we're in the latest generation, we think we're in the greatest generation. And, and we think that because we're last in line, that we somehow have supplanted and surpassed all the wisdom of previous generations. It's just not true. The wisdom and the grace given to many people throughout previous generations, we don't want to lose that. In fact, I would say that studying history helps us interpret our own day more clearly. And so that's why we look at these biographical sermons. Now, uh, this year it's Lilius Trotter. Um, 
In all the years of doing these, uh, this is the first woman I've done. So ladies, please forgive me. Um, let's just assume that it's better to start now than never do it. Uh, but she was an English woman born in 1853 in London. And uh, I hazard to guess, I'm tempted, I won't do it, but uh, get a show of hands. Because whenever you do that, whenever you say, well, raise your hands if you know her, you get some hands like that, you get a lot of these. I don't know what to do with these things. Is, is that really like... Are you embarrassed? You've got to let the people around you know you thought you knew her or something? But e- either way, I hazard to think that many of you have never heard of her. And if truth be told, which I want to do, I had never heard of her either, probably up to a year ago. She just seemed to be, she just fell off the pages of history. And uh, I want to see her brought back on, and that's why we're doing this. She was a woman of unique faith. She was not a perfect woman, but she had incredible courage and faith. She's a single woman poor in health, and without any connections, uh, she takes a boat to Algiers, Algeria, and sets up a mission for which she would then serve for the next 40 years of her life, dying there, it growing to 30 different missionaries and 13 to 15, it's uncertain, stations around the country of Algeria. It's, it's absolutely incredible. I could have titled this biography kind of a, a passion of the impossible or, or the glory of the impossible. She said these words. She said, let us dare to test God's resources. Let us ask him to kindle in us and keep aflame that passion for the impossible that shall make us delight in it with him till the day we, sh- we shall see it transformed in fact. So almost off the pages of history, she blazes this trail of faithfulness and courage. I mean, it it demands a listening, just given what she was able to accomplish. So you don't need to write notes. I just hope that you'll hear it and be moved by it. If you want notes, I'll send you my notes. But that way you can just hopefully just take in this life. Okay, so she was born in London, July 14, 1853, to Isabella and Alexander Trotter. He was a wealthy stockbroker. Uh, during the age, the golden age of Queen Victoria. Now remember, times were changing during her reign. Uh, During the 1800s, the the penny post was established, a system of mail, the uh, the telegraph was invented, so communication was increased. And in the 40s alone, 6,000 miles of a railroad track were laid in Britain alone. So the whole changing of, of transport was moving from stagecoach to to rail. She was raised in a a large family. The father had been married first, had six children. Wife died, second marriage. Lilius was the firstborn of that second marriage. But it was a a preferred home. It was a very luxurious home. She had governesses teaching her both French and German in the fashionable west end of of London. She was raised. Uh, She had educated parents who treasured beauty. I mean, they, they treasured God's glory in creation. And so every year they had the ability to tour the continent of Europe and see sights and sounds that most would never get to see. Uh, They had a degree of humanitarian concern for those in their need. They were of a a Christian, they were a Christian family, uh, but perhaps a Christian that didn't take flame like her life eventually did. In all, all in all, her life was very safe, it was secure, it was a sweet childhood until she was 12, and then tragedy struck. Her father, who she loved greatly, uh, died after a two-year illness. And it really was, it brought about some major changes in her life. 
First, they did move uh, to Montague Square, a uh, 40 Montague Square. Now, if that means anything to you, I was doing just a little bit of research on it and found out that they lived at 40 Montague Square. Uh, now, just down the road, but about 120 years later, so did Ringo Starr and, and John Lennon, and they, they successively shared this apartment. Jimi Hendrix was in there, too. And uh, so I, I'm telling you, it was 100 years later. That was for free. It was just the research I did, so <laughs> enjoy it. Okay, so, so you have her at 12, losing uh, a key player in her life. Well, it devastated her. It shattered the secure predictability of her world. And uh, his death, though, it, it had the effect of bringing a seriousness to this young woman. And, and it brought about a heightened awareness of God. In fact, her family commented, they said this, um, about how she had grown in caring for others. And while other kids were at play, she would often be found in prayer. And, and it began to change, even affected the family. In fact, we read um, her sister commented and said, she simply shed a constant light in and over our home. Through the very hardest thing in her life, God brought her soul to blossom. So she began to change. So we do want to remember that as a people, that hardships can often be the impetus of great change in her life. And it was for her. So, so she spent those years with her mother and siblings in the home. It was around the age of 19 that she came into a fuller flowering of her faith. And it was around, it was um, God's Spirit used the Higher Life Movement. The Higher Life Movement later became the Keswick Convention, or the Keswick Ministries. And it was through these ministries that her... Um, her awareness of Christ and his glory increased. Now, this higher life movement um, had some good and some perhaps downsides to it, but what they sought was they sought to deepen the Christian life, a greater vitality, a greater intimacy with God. Remember now, at the time, religion was often cold and like a dead orthodoxy. It was very formal. It was very ritualistic. Well, this Keswick Convention was seeking to bring about a greater intimacy and closeness and proximity to God. It was characterized by an entire surrender to the Lord, a perfect trust in Him, which would, which would result in greater victory over sin and inward rest for the soul. So she attended it each year, and her faith was beginning to grow. And here's where the central part of her faith grew. She began to realize this that the gifts of God were never an end in themselves. So the gifts, if you're a Christian here, you have been given gifts. They were not ever to be an end in themselves, provided solely for your personal enjoyment, but they were meant to prepare the Christian for true vocation, a life of service to others in the name of Christ. So she began to see all that she has was for God to use for others. In fact, she wrote these words early on. She says, we ourselves are saved to save. We are made to give, to let everything go, if only we may have more to give. The pebble takes in the rays of light that fall upon it, but the diamond flashes them out again. Every facet is means, not simply of drinking more in, but giving more out. She says, a flower that stops short of its flowering misses its purpose. We are created for more than our spiritual development. Reproduction, not mere development, is the goal of matured being. Reproduction in the lives of others. Now this is when she says that the rudder of her will was set for the purposes of God. 
This is a major change in this young woman, 19, 20 years of age. Well, there's going to be another influence that comes in her life, and that is Dwight L. Moody. Many of you know that name. He was an American evangelist of the mid-19th century. He had done a preaching tour through England for two years. It was very, uh, he was very helpful in terms of lighting in England again with the spiritual awakening. Well, she was caught up in that growth. And through his involvement in her life, she began to uh, move in greater ways into service. For example, she began to work with um, Welbeck Street Institute. It was like a hostel. It was like a home for working women. Uh, she would bring in these working women. She would seek to train them for better employment. She would seek to train them in things of God. Uh, she worked with the prostitutes at Victoria Station. She would try to draw them back into the home to give them a place to live while she trained them and taught them for a more honorable employment. Uh, she was one that started the first restaurant for women only. Now, back then, restaurants weren't as they are. Of course, there was no fast food. Most restaurants that were there were only for those who were rich and could afford them. But she opened up a place that could serve at least hot meals for women that were working, that were forced to maybe put some food in a bag and eat on the sidewalk. And during the inclement weather, it was very difficult on these young women. And so she would take them in. And, and they created this restaurant for them. So you, you could see she had this passion for service for the downtrodden and those who are suffering greatly. But here's something that many people didn't realize, is that she had a passion for art. In fact, her, her parents said that she had an innate sense of beauty. And it was combined with this incredibly God-given talent uh, to paint and to sketch, to use watercolors. One author said that she had a heart vision or a heart sight as deep as eyesight. She could both see the beauty, but also savor it. In these first 20 years, her zeal for travel, because their family would travel each year, just fueled her love for the glory of God as seen in creation. In fact, when she saw the Alps for the first time, she wept over their beauty. Now, it was on one of these trips that she actually met a man by the name of John Ruskin. John Ruskin, if you're an art major, you probably know the name. He was uh, one of the England's most famous art and social critics and philosophers in the 19th century. A brilliant man, well-respected, just infamous. Well, let, let me explain, because meeting him created a crisis of soul, which then sent her on the path that she would take with her life. What happened was she was traveling uh, to Venice, Italy, with her mother on vacation. And it just so happened, by God's providence, that the mother found John Ruskin was staying at the same hotel. And so uh, the mother sent six of her sketches to him, this great art critic, and said, please give us your perspective, wondering if he would even take the time to look at them. Well, he did look at them. And here's what he said. He gave her high marks uh, for her work. And it would, by the way, it would establish a friendship that would go all the way until the end. They'd be writing letters back and forth, visiting one another. Had a, had a great relationship between the two. But he would use these sketches for his students. He was a teacher at Oxford, professor at Oxford, and he would use these sketches to train his students. And here's what he said. He said, you will, in examining them, beyond all telling, feel that they are exactly what we should like to be able to do. And in the frankest and plainest manner, show us how to do it. If heaven help us, 
it can be done. In other words, he saw her talent so unique, so radical, that, that he was saying, only if heaven will help us can we do it. In fact, you, you see on your bulletin, this is one of her sketches. It wasn't one of these that John Ruskin was using. This is most likely um, a picture of her time when recuperating in Switzerland of the mountains. Uh, but she, she has, you know, there's a book, Blossoms in the Desert, uh, which carry many of her sketches and many of her writings paralleled with it. Just a, a, a beautiful resource for you. Um, but anyways, as time passed, they developed this deep relationship. He appreciates her character. He's overwhelmed by her talent. And here's what he says. Of all the dainty bits of clay in the hands of the potter that were ever fashioned, I think you have the least grit in you. And you can't think what a delight it is to an old porcelain maker to get a hold of such a bit. So you could tell that he saw in her an incredible potential. Well, he promised her fame. He promised her to get behind, to use his resources uh, to advance her career. In fact, he says, if you were to give yourself to art, you would be the greatest living painter and do things that would be immortal. But he was criticizing her and condemning her because her work in the mission was inhibiting her growth as an artist. And so here she is, a 23-year-old woman, and it's put before her as a choice. Do I pursue fame and art, or do I pursue a life of service to God? I mean, can you imagine the pressure? And by the way, that pressure continued on. The letters would continue on even after she made her decision. So it was a choice between do I answer the call to fame or do I answer the call to service? Well, create a crisis in her soul. But here's what she says. She says, I know God will make it all clear and not let me go wrong. That's something to remember. Even when we're in the midst of the affirmation of faith is important. You hear the struggle, though, when she says, at first I can only rush about in the woods and in a dream. It was like a dream for the first day or two. Since then, an almost certain state of suffocation or half intoxication that I can hardly eat or sleep except by trusting the Lord about it. If I had not him to hide in danger, I know not what I would do. But I do believe Christ will win in the end. So after two or three days of deliberation, she says this. She says, I see clear as daylight now. I cannot give myself to painting in the way he means, and to continue to see, but to continue to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And many of her friends and family were absolutely disillusioned and disappointed in her. And yet she understands that it may, not be the, the, it may not be necessary for everybody else to choose the same path that she has, but for her that was it. She didn't know what would come of it. But she said this, the one thing is to keep obedient in spirit. To do otherwise is to cramp and ruin the soul. She knew that she had to pursue God. She saw her choice as kind of, she called it the grand independence of the soul. She said this, the liberty of those who have nothing to lose because they have nothing to keep. We can do without anything while we have God. So that's the choice she made for more, 10 more years, or approximately 10 more years. She ministered in London, kind of integrating her teaching, her training, and her service to these women of the city. Okay, but God would further call her into a life of obedience. So in her 30s, so just in her early 30s, I'm about to wrap up her life. I don't want to drag it on too long. But in her early 30s, she began to feel a yearning to the needs of the faraway Christian lands. And this is where it gets really quite interesting. At this, 
was beginning a great movement. So during the late 1880s, there was a big mission movement on both sides of the pond. So both in Britain and Europe, but also in America, there was a big push for missions. And, um, and she felt that. She was being drawn to get into missions. In fact, she told one of her friends that whenever she prayed, the words North Africa sounded in her soul as though a voice were calling to her. And, and she just, she lived with that for a time. But then in May of 1887, uh, a man gave a talk on missions in Algeria, in the Kabyle Mountains of Algeria. And he made the comment that they have a people of whom no knowledge of Christ exists. Here's what she says. She says, in the first sentence, God's call had sounded. If Algeria was so near that I could spend half a year there and the other half at home because she had to care for her mother and her sister, uh, then it was for me. And before the morning, there remained no shadow of doubt that it was his plan. So on July 14, uh, 1887, on her 34th birthday, she sent an application to North African Mission Board, and she was rejected. They rejected her, said, we don't, we don't want you because of health reasons. Okay, a few years back, she had undergone surgery, and uh, she had a weakened heart, permanent condition for her life. Well, she decided to go to Algeria anyway, using her own resources. And on March 5, less than a year later, after being rejected, she left the Waterloo Station with her friend Lisa Lewis, singing Crown Him with Many Crowns. She met Blanche Hayworth, another worker that would be her Martha for 30-plus years at Southampton, and they left for Algeria. As the paddles of the, of the boat were turning, she said these words. She said, a strange, glad feeling of utter loosing and being cast upon God. Four days later, on March 9, she and her two colleagues sailed into Algiers Harbor. Alone on the deck, stars shining, filled with joy, they continued to sing, crown him Lord of all. Now, now remember... The barriers before them are frankly unimaginable. I, I mean, I would say almost impossible. Think about it. They were completely unprepared. All three women were absolutely rejected for mission boards. None of them knew one person in the country. None of them had one sentence of Arabic that they were, that they knew. They had no leaders. They had no cross-cultural training. She'd later say that it was a fool's errand that she was on. And they came, and they covenanted with God. They said, God, will you open doors, will you open hearts, and will you open the heavens to bring forth a harvest? And just, I wouldn't advocate that, just a, as a matter of rule. I, I wouldn't advocate that, but I'm, I'm stunned by just the sheer courage uh, the confidence in sensing that she had heard God and that God would not let her go astray, and she acted on it. She acted on it without reservation, this single woman of being 34. Well, she'd end up spending the next 40 years doing mission work. 40 years. She would end up, as I said, forming her own mission band, the Algiers Mission Band, with 30, 30 missionaries scattered across the nation of Algeria. Uh, she would begin in the city of Algiers, uh, working with, uh, in the slums with uh, children and women, uh, initially beginning with uh, French, you know, because a colonial uh, French colony. And so she'd work with the French as she's learning the language. She moved to the slums. She'd work with the women. She'd work with the children. Remember, many of these women, you know, in Muslim context, 
They'd be married at 12, 13. They could be past two, three husbands by the time they're 20 years of age, and then they'd be cast to the side, and they're in great danger. She would take them in. She would train them, teach them marketable skills that they could provide for themselves. She'd teach the children Bible stories, the hero stories of the Old Testament, just to make inroads to families. You could not get behind the walls of a Muslim compound, but working with the children. In fact, that was one of the innovative techniques that she came up with. But she would minister to these souls. First, she started in Algiers. Then they planted two or three stations along the coast. And then they went interior to the nation of Algeria, which if you go south of Algiers, you find a lot of sand. The Sahara Desert is there. And they would take trips into the interior. This is an English woman wearing long wool skilts with a wide brim hat, taking a camel 300 miles into the desert to share the nature of the gospel with people. It's absolutely profound. I mean, just think about that for a minute. We wouldn't take a vacation without doing more work. Well, her death came in 1928, being confined to bed for the last two years of her life. She continued to pray and lead and write. One of the last things that she had done, actually, was to dictate a letter to Amy Carmichael. Many of you have heard that name. She was another Englishwoman, missionary in India. Uh, she wrote to her, uh, had a correspondence with her, sent many of uh, much of the literature that Lilius Trotter produced over the years was sent to her as well. Uh, she had a map of Algeria on the ceiling of her bed because she couldn't get out of it. And she would just pray into the wee hours of the night for this for these mission, uh, for the nation to come to Christ. But on the map was, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fill it. I mean, what incredible persevering courage. Well, on August 27, 1928, so tomorrow will be the 90th anniversary of her death. While her friends sang, Jesus, lover of my soul, Lilius looked out the window. Her friends asked, What do you see? She exclaimed, a chariot and six horses. One of her friends asked, are you seeing beautiful things? She says, yes, many, many beautiful things. She lifted her hands in prayer and drew her last breath. That's the, the movie, if you go on Amazon Prime, Beautiful Things is a, a docudrama kind of of her story. It's excellently done, but an hour and ten minutes. I encourage you to watch it. So that's her life in a nutshell. Obviously, there's a ton more that I'd love to give you, but don't want to lose you. But let me just draw a couple lessons out of her life because I don't want this to be a history lesson. I want it to be, I want it to be historical, but the applications are for you today. I, I mean, they impact us. Her life could be used to a greater devotion to God. So number one would be effective long-term work comes from weakness. See, our culture values strength as power. And yet the Christian life seems to promote weakness is power. Now, she's a testimony of weakness. I mean, think about it. Not just, when you look at the massive work that she did and the incredible effort that she made at world evangelism, not just in Algeria, she had influence in, in Europe and the rest of the Arab world. When you look at that, it comes from a woman who was rejected because she didn't have enough strength of her heart. That's what the rendering of probably a group of men said, you, yeah, we don't think you can do it. You're too weak. Uh, she was rejected also because she was 34. She was too old to learn the language. She was too old to the rigors of missionary work. And yet she and her, her uh, Blanche Hayworth, her co-worker, 
would for the next 30 plus years do this rigorous ministry of riding camels in the desert at 70, no less. Incredible. They had no training, no connections. I mean, she becomes irrefutable evidence that God's power is made perfect in weakness. In fact, arriving in Algiers, here's what she said. She said, the three of us stood there looking at our battlefield. None of us fit to pass a doctor for any society, not knowing a soul in the place, not knowing a sentence of Arabic, or a clue in beginning a work in an untouched ground, we only knew we had to come. We had to come. Because why? God called her. She goes, truly, if God needed weakness, he had it. He had plenty of it. But, but here's her issue. She knew that weakness was power because of Christ, because of the nature of the cross. She says, she says the world's salvation was not wrought by three years he went about doing good, but in the three hours of darkness in which he hung, stripped, nailed, in uttermost exhaustion of spirit, soul, and body, till his heart broke. So little wonder for us if price is the power of weakness. Paul writes this, of course, he quotes Jesus. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In Second Corinthians, Paul is just suffering greatly. And he says, no, 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 my power is going to be made perfect in you. So let me ask you, what weakness in your life has prevented you from stepping out in faith or serving in a ministry or serving someone? Where have you written yourself out of God's story because you just don't have it? You don't have enough strength. You can't do it. It's too, it's too formidable for me. I don't have the power to do it. How many of you have said that at one point in your Christian life? And yet she becomes an example to us. No, his power is actually perfected in it. In fact, I think in some ways God would rather have us weak. That way his power will be displayed. Okay, the second lesson I would draw out of this would be success in God's kingdom is by losing, not gaining. It's by losing. Why do I say that? Well, our culture values success and power is greater than sacrifice and service. We in the church too, we love celebrities. We love rock stars. We love figures, entertainers. Anyone who has a platform, we seem to just be drawn to. And yet she's an example of one whom Jesus says, you know, if anyone wants to be great in the kingdom, let him be a servant of all. I mean, she had fame and fortune offered to her. She had success. She had the promise of, you know, we're all talking about the legacy. What's this person's legacy going to be like? She had the potential to have an incredible legacy. And she gave it all up for a chance to what? To die. She gave it up for a chance to die. One writer asked the question, she says, Trotter's stunning decision bids us to question the true meaning of success. Could you or I follow an unglamorous conviction at the risk of sacrificing personal wealth and fame? With her artistic legacy on the line, Trotter chose to relentlessly follow her calling, which meant choosing obscurity over celebrity. In fact, Lilius Trotter would write, she says, measure your life by loss, not by gain, not by wine drunk, but by the wine poured forth. For love's strength stands in love's sacrifice, and he who suffers most has the most to give. But isn't that what Jesus just said? That a grain of wheat must fall to the ground and die before it bears much fruit? How do you define success? So in your life, what is a successful life? Is it not on the acquiring of positions or things or, or relationships? How do you define success? What would be, you know, all of us want to have at the end of our lives a sense of, yes, it's been well. My life has been profitable. 
It's been a good life. What is that for you? Is, is the definition, is your answer driven more by the spirit of the age in terms of the kind of the upward movement on the ladder? Or, or is it driven more by the spirit of God where death and sacrifice and suffering actually brings life and joy to us? Another lesson we see here, a great costs of ministry display the great worth of Christ. So great costs of ministry display great cost or the great value of Christ. Listen, our culture avoids costs. We do risk analysis, right? We do cost-benefit analysis. We're a risk-averse people. We want to measure the situation, assess the risk, and then we may or may not engage it. And yet she seems to just embrace the risk. I've told you about some of it. She's 34, has to learn Arabic. That's about 80,000 words, 10 years to master. Okay, we'll do that. And remember, I don't know if I said this in the first or second service, but being raised in luxury, she had never opened her own drapes. People would come in and the servants would open her drapes so that she could see the sun when she gets out of bed. They didn't have any knowledge of domestic responsibilities. She had never cooked. She had never cleaned. She didn't know how to buy or prepare food. She had to learn all those things, all the costs confronting her. But not just that, she had to face that when there was a conversion, that many in the Muslim community would either poison the convert or practice black magic and sorcery. She had the French government to deal with. The French government, these were British nationals. And so at this time, uh, Britain was a threat to France. And so they, can, she, they accused them of spies. They would send their policemen out after them. And, and when they would make inroads, they would, they would force them out. The Islamic government, the local government there, they, they rented the building next to their building and started trying to do better ministries so as to dry up the ministries in their facility, to try to take the people away. Uh, this is not to mention the cost of trying to travel in the desert on a camel. Here a woman of high state is sleeping in tents and, and the, she didn't have any male people to, uh, to go with her. It was, it was all women. They had male guides, but half the time they weren't sure they knew where they were going and they could have turned around and abused them. They could have killed them. Nobody would have ever known. Not to talk about her own health issues and, and the difficulty of Muslim ministry she says it was like beating our heads against stone walls sometimes. But they were undefeatable, is what I'm saying. That the costs were there, but the worth of Christ was there. She saw that Jesus was actually worth it. The inheritance you know, that, that Miguel was praying for, that we would see that inheritance, that's what she was looking for. In fact, so clear was her vision on Jesus that her words were the impetus of the hymn that we often sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. The author of that hymn was prompted by her writings to write it. So there is a cost to being a Christian, and there will always be a cost because we are followers of a God who the world opposes. The costs don't trouble me. It's holding Christ in such esteem that the costs seem insignificant to us, given his worth and given his glory. And this is not to say she was without joy. I don't want you thinking her life was just one tragic train wreck of suffering. She was noted two different times at her memorial service. It was noted that she was a woman who had a smile, and there was a joy to her that was 
uh, that was just intoxicating. She would go into the desert, the same desert that I would be terrified of, frankly. Uh, she found God's glory to be clear in the desert. She would go to the desert actually to find relief. A place of fear became a place of rest for her. Uh, another lesson we learned is that staying and praying matter. Now listen, everybody can't be a Lilius Trotter, clearly. But what she spoke about was how she had two friends, Adeline and Lily Duff. They remained in England. They were friends of her, and they prayed for her ministry for four decades. Four of them, 40 years. And here's what she writes about them. Through eternity, I shall thank God for the silent flame in the hearts of those two friends and what they did for me. Neither of them have ever had their path opened into foreign work, but the light of day that is coming will show what he has let them do in kindling others. You know, we are sending a family to the region of North Africa. Could we pray for them? Would one of you take up that call? Forty decades these ladies prayed. We have family in East Asia. Are we praying for them? This is how we are involved in the mission of kindling a flame in others. I keep praying that people from our church would go into these same fields to serve along these same families. And that over the years, we'll load people up in those areas. It would be our little corners of the world that we are reaching for the glory of Christ. Uh, here's another one. Don't fear change and in innovation in mission methods. You know, our culture lives under the principle, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And that becomes kind of a reason why we don't do anything new in the church. Well, well she changed things. She changed methods. She was influenced by Dwight Moody. He used to use this wordless book, this wordless book. In other words, uh, particularly in cross cultures, you know, they would paint the gospel in stories. This would take advantage of her artistic abilities. And you'd paint the gospel stories and you'd explain it through pictures and not words. She used that to great success in Algeria. But, but she, she was very innovative in bringing new mission strategies. So I had a teacher in seminary, Christy Wilson was his name. He's long since passed. Uh, but he said that her missionary, uh, her innovative methods were 100 years ahead of their time. For example, she started using short-term missions, never before. She began to minister before the language was acquired. Normally you acquire the language, then you minister. Uh, she fitted art with literature. Uh, she trained nationals. She used children to reach families. So, so, so she was bringing in all these innovative techniques that now are standard for us, but they were new for her. Just a couple more. Patience in ministry of the ups and downs in ministry. Listen, our culture is instantaneous. We want everything now. If, we don't, if it doesn't prove successful, we move on. And yet she was undeterred. I mean, think about the setbacks for a minute. I mean, consider what she was facing, the constant opposition from the French or from the Islamic government or those people that were, that were angry over their family members converting. Some of their converts were killed. I mean, think of the setback time after time. And yet she says, one learns as one goes not to fear the detours which God leads on. She called these her retrievals. She'd see the gospel advance in the life of somebody, but then the pressure of Islamic society would come on. They would back away, but then years later they would come back. They were her retrievals. They, you know, God wasn't finished with it yet. In fact, you said, I'm full of hope that when God delays in fulfilling our little thoughts, 
It is to have himself room to work out his great ones. What have you given up on? Just If you're a Christian here, what have you given up on? Have you, what person or situation have you considered? You know what? I can't keep praying for that. It's just impossible. It's, what have you considered to be too great for God to move in? Can I encourage you to maybe pick those back up again and, and to consider that, no, that may be exactly where God is meeting you. He, he may be calling for faith at that point. You know, she says this. She says that faith is the link which joins our uttermost weakness to God's almighty strength. She says, take the hardest thing in your life, the place of difficulty, outward or inward, and expect God to triumph gloriously in that very spot. Just there, he can bring your souls into bloom. Every one of us has got some pocket or area of our life that we have just kind of consigned to, it's never going to change. And things may not change in, in some areas, but, but what are those things that you have since taken from God? And said he's not going to move on it. Another lesson is God's precious gems are often kept unseen. You know, our culture is a self-displaying culture now, right? With Facebook, with Instagram, we do display ourselves quite well across the, the pages of the internet about who we are or what we're doing or what accomplishments. And yet she labored away in obscurity. In fact, as mentioned, you know, if this one American pastor's wife hadn't have been introduced to Lily Estrada, uh, of which she did 10 years of research, spent time in England going through the, the basement files of the Arab mission, trying to find out more information on her. Would we know much about her? Probably not. But God wanted her to be known now. God's bringing her out of obscurity now. And, and God, God finds joy in the things done that will never be seen. You know, we love to be recognized, to be appreciated, to be thanked, to be acknowledged. To labor in obscurity is precious to God. Thomas Gray, a British poet of the 18th century, said, Full many a gem of purest ray serene, the dark unfathomed caves of ocean bear. Full many a flower of us born to blush unseen and waste its sweetness on the air. I had no idea what that meant. Uh, I asked Carol and she explained it to me. What it means, what it means is that, that it's never wasted because people don't see it, but God sees it. God sees it. When I think about her legacy, she doesn't have reams of conversions and hundreds of churches planted and all these books written. She doesn't have those things. And so when asked about her legacy, she said, their works do follow them, quoting out of Revelation. She says, the results need not end with our earthly days. God may use, by reason of the wonderful solidarity of the church, the things he has wrought in us for the blessings of souls unknown to us. In other words, your work continues on. Even though it may not have been seen in your lifetime, it doesn't mean it ends. God only knows the endless possibilities that lie folded in each of us. Can we let go of the temptation to measure ministry by numbers and popularity and recognition? Can, can we not value ministry and acts of service by the popularity of them or the respect or the appreciation? Not value churches, not value people, not value Christians. God loves the gems of obscurity. And then the last one is that prayer is the secret to faithfulness. For her, she said that without prayer, she could not sustain the spiritual oppression of that Muslim nation. 
fact, she said that of Islam, she said it's as dry as the dune and as hard as the gravel. And she saw prayer as needed to break down the walls of ignorance and darkness. And she likened it to prayer being like a vibration. So she had this Rue de Croissant was the first mission house she had. It was these massive building with these massive pillars. And one night, one of the pillars just came apart and crashed down on the floor. She called an architect in to assess why did that one pillar fall? And so the architect did his analysis and he said, well, it's the baker next door. See, the baker next door had this process of kneading bread like a seesaw motion over the night, all night long, it was going back and forth, creating this vibration of movement that ultimately ended up working loose and breaking that monolithic, that pillar that just seemed immovable. And she says, prayer is like vibrations. She says, each prayer beat down here vibrates up to the very throne of God and does its work through that throne on the principalities and powers around us. We can never tell which prayer will liberate the answer, but we can tell that each one will do its work. In other words, this accumulative effect of prayer, we want to pray for a day or two or maybe a week, maybe we last a whole month, and then we move on from prayer. And, and no, 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 it's that vibrating effect that will ultimately bring down that which should not be brought down. So we have this life before us. What are you going to do with it? We have a life that was lived to the fullest. In the world's eyes, kind of obscure. Maybe people would even say it was wasted. And yet here we are, almost 100 years later, being impressed and overwhelmed by the labor of which she, of which she did. Let me remind you, you know, she, at the beginning I read that quote, let us dare to test God's resources. Let us ask him to kindle in us and to keep aflame that passion for the impossible that God might uh, make us delight in it with, with him because God doesn't find anything impossible, nor should we. And we delight in it with him till the day when we shall see it by his grace transformed into fact. So would you ask God, we have a few moments of prayer following the service, ask God to kindle that flame in your soul, to believe. Maybe he's asking you to move with patience in ministry or to do things in obscurity. Or maybe he's asking you to embrace costs that you have put aside. Or perhaps he's asking you to pray. Or perhaps he's asking you to redefine what success is in life. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.